Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Clever Girls Know podcast. This is Bola Shokumbi. I'm the founder and CEO of Clever Girl Finance. The Clever Girls Know podcast is a podcast for women, offering a space for conversations around personal finance, business, life, and living. I'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast, and you can do that everywhere you listen to your podcast episodes. And if you love what you listen to, head on over to iTunes and leave a review so that other amazing women just like you can find this podcast as well. I'd also love for you to stop by clevergirlfinance.com. We have new content on the blog multiple times a week. We have over 30 plus free courses. Plus, when you sign up for a course, you can talk to a Clever Girl Finance mentor for free to get encouragement, motivation, or if you just want to have an open, no shame, no judgment girl talk. Finally, check out our YouTube channel. Just search Clever Girl Finance on YouTube. And if you don't already follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Clever Girl Finance. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. Hi, Daniela. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, welcome to the Clever Girl Snow podcast. I am excited to have you on as our special guest today. I'm excited to be here. And you have written a pretty awesome book that just came out. It's called The Other. I'm excited to talk to you more about the inspiration and your story behind this really awesome book. But before we dive in, please tell everyone listening who you are and what you do. Again, thank you so much for having me. So I am primarily a reporter for MSNBC's Morning Joe. I'm also a contributing writer for MSNBC's Know Your Value, which is Mika Brzezinski's empowerment platform. And I write about anything from career to financial well, um, financial health and mental health. But I specifically focus on issues that are relevant to millennials and Gen Z, as well as women of color. And I also have a mentorship community called Accesso Community, which started in the pandemic because I found that there was a lot of women who needed a support system that they weren't getting at work. And so we often talk about the things we get really honest <laughs> with each other, a little too honest, but it's a very supportive, intimate group that are led by mentors who can talk about the things that you can't really talk about openly at work. That's pretty awesome. I think the pandemic opened a lot of, I guess, doorways and presented offerings for a lot of needs that women had, especially where we we just felt like now is the time to like talk about this, create these communities, have this conversation. And so that's really great that you have that going on. Thank you. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why this was such a big thing coming out of the pandemic is because a lot of women have learned to recognize burnout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just recently did a podcast episode on on burnout and it's something that even I struggle with. So definitely agree with you. <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to kind of go back to your, your backstory or go into your backstory. And one of the things that you talk about in your book is that you spent many years undocumented and in the shadows as an immigrant from Chile and you worked odd jobs to pay your way through school and eventually became who you are now, a world-class television journalist. Tell us a bit more about that journey from being that undocumented immigrant to finding your way to being uh, working for MSNBC and now writing this book. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for that intro. Wow. That was, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I, you know, lived in a small town where there weren't a lot of immigrants. And if there were immigrants, they usually, they had, they were siloed. They weren't really engaged with a lot of white people in town to be, uh-huh. to be. And so I went to a school where I was the only Latina and I had parents who had funny accents and we didn't grow up with a lot of money. And I did everything that I could to cover this like huge secret of being undocumented because everything that I had been told was that undocumented people weren't even people like they didn't don't even belong here. And so I felt I internalized a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And I always grew up thinking that I was the problem. So I shouldn't be here. I don't belong. What do I need to do in order to be included? How do I need to change in order to belong? And so from a really young age, I, that's how I, that was my way of operating. And in some ways, this is weird, but in some ways it allowed me a little bit of success because I was the yes girl. I was, I'll do whatever, you know, whatever's needed. I I knew how to appease and accommodate people. And I did everything that I could to not cause cognitive dissonance, which, you know, keeps people at ease with you. Long story short, I, I get to college I work my way through. I'm still undocumented. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing with my degree because even if I graduate, I can't use it, right? My parents and brothers and sisters were working night shifts at movie theaters to send me like the little bit of cash. It was really a family effort on getting me through college and private scholarships. I get to the end of my semester, one of my last semesters at school, miraculously, I, you know, I'm late on payments, but I make it to the end. And with no, obviously no college loans because I couldn't, I didn't qualify for any mm-hmm. help, but last semester of school, and you know how important the experience before the experience is, right? Before mm-hmm. you get to the real world. I didn't have that. And so I knew that I probably couldn't work in what I wanted to work in, in Ohio. I wanted to be a storyteller and I wanted to be a journalist, but at that time, I mean, that was like a really big goal. I mean, I couldn't even get a nine to five with my status. And I had this big idea that I wanted to work in TV. I mean, like, that's crazy. I decided to apply anywhere and everywhere I could in New York. I sent out my resume to literally anybody that was hiring for unpaid internships because I couldn't work. You know, I, I had to find something unpaid. I ended up finding like on the internet, the marketing agency for P. Diddy's a bad boy entertainment company, which, you know, you could tell that it was like a lot of local New Yorkers, like cool local New Yorkers <laughs> who had either some sort of degree with somebody who worked there. Okay. And here I was little Daniela, like sending my resume from <laughs> Ohio in the cornfields of Ohio and <laughs> begging, you know, hoping for, for somebody to call me back. I ended up getting a call back from one of the uh, hiring managers there and Oh, so I didn't tell you this. I made a little white lie on my resume. And I said that I lived in New York City because you know this probably. You don't want anybody to make an excuse for you. If they want me there tomorrow, I'll be there tomorrow, right? I don't want them to know that I'm like poor living in the middle of Ohio because they're going to be like, okay, why would she come here in two weeks for an unpaid internship? Like, it doesn't make sense. Let's not waste our time. So I ended up saying, yes, I'll be there the next day because they wanted me in an interview the next day. And I hopped on a bus like that night, an 18 hour bus, sketchy, 
bus ride, nine stops along the way, got to smelly port authority, cleaned up change, ran into the internship interview and ended up getting that because they were like, okay, you crazy person. Like all you had to do was like do an interview via Skype. You didn't need to come all the way over here. But, you know, I, I just wanted to let them know how excited and, and grateful I would be for this opportunity. And so that summer, I didn't know that this was going to happen, but DACA came along, which allowed me to get a work permit, an ID, and really an identity in some ways. From there, I applied to NBC, the PAGE program, which was an incredible entry-level program that allowed me to go through the doors of places like SNL and Jimmy Fallon. It's just an incredible program. I have no idea how I got in. And then I, then I happened to be at Morning Joe, have been there for like eight years, maybe nine years, first as production coordinator, then as a booking producer, and now as a reporter. And, you know, Mika has been such a big help and in, in empower me and giving me a platform. But that, in short, is a very long story <laughs> of how I got to where I am. That's that's pretty awesome. And I just looked up what the DACA policy was. So that's the deferred action for childhood arrivals for folks who are who are curious. So it basically allows young unauthorized immigrants to remain in the country with lawful status. And that had to have been a huge game changer for your life and anyone else who became eligible for that under that policy, right? Because it now gave the opportunity to get paid work legal work and work for this really huge, incredible uh, corporation where MSNBC is, which basically helped kick off your career. How did you feel when you learned that you were now eligible for lawful status in the U.S.? I, in this country, am categorized as a woman of color. Latinas are categorized as, as a woman of color. We're the ones that lag the farthest unequal pay. But I'm a white Latina. I've had privileges that, you know, my Afro-Latina sister just didn't have. And so when I talk about the other and I talk about the heart of this book, it is the alienation of feeling alone, of feeling not like, like you don't belong, and the internalizing of the shame that goes along with it. The internalizing of the shame that then tells you that you're not enough, that you're not, you're not worthy of being at the table. And all of this conditioning shows up in our career. And that's the point that I wanted to make because I think it's a really important point about the heart of the book. And when I found out about DACA, like I was, I remember I was in the middle of my internship and I get a text message and they were like, turn on the TV right now. Mind you, I had no idea that this was happening. Mm -hmm. And so I go to this little deli on the corner and I see President Obama in the Rose Garden making this address with the DHS DHS head about DACA, this program, like you just mentioned, that allowed deferred status to young kids that were brought here by no fault of their own. And I and I have to be careful with that because there's no one to blame here. I, I want to make sure that I don't, you know, that that's not inferred. But kids that were brought here and were in total limbo. And I was like, oh my God, that's me. That's me. That's me. Like how many, how many more of us are there? Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, like you just said, it gave me the opportunity to work, to have an ID, but it gave me a chance to shed a little bit of the shame that I felt of being undocumented and being, feeling like I didn't belong. This was, I mean, the DACA program has been in place for 10 years and we're ready for something more permanent. 
But at that moment, this was a light, this was a light that I needed to, that I needed to say, okay, you can work here, but you also, you belong. And that's, that's a big thing when you'd say that's, yeah, that's that's really, really important. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I kind of want to transition into just your, your career path. So you have a career in media. Now you work, you know, as you mentioned in media, how did your childhood experiences influence that career path? And why did you choose a career path in the media space? And then we'll get into questions around, you know, like in feeling inadequacy, owning your, your power at work, but like, why did you pick media specifically? Yeah, I picked media because what, when I was growing up in Ohio, I, I didn't see the stories of my community reflected. And even now, you know, there are so many stories of people in the middle of the country that whose stories aren't reflected in the way that they would like. And so for me, it was really important to be in a space where I had some sort of seat at the table and I didn't know what it looked like back then. Right. And I think that's, I think that opened, I think it was beneficial to me to, to not lock myself in, in such a linear career path because nowadays media is so, you know, you can zigzag all over the place and there's so many platforms and opportunities, but in short, I just really wanted to be part of the conversation on how stories are shaped and told because I knew the power it had on representation and I knew the power it had on women like me. And one of the things you talk about in your book is feeling that false sense of inadequacy as you're growing your career and having ideas like you need to keep your head down, you need to stay in your lane. <laughs> right. Put your head down, do the work, be grateful. My mom and abuela, like I love them so much. Smart, strategic women. But when it comes to corporate America, they, they just, they don't get it. And I, you know, I struggled at the beginning because I am so proud of that immigrant ethos. Like that's what I call it because it got me through college undocumented. It got me on that bus, right? That immigrant spirit, that yes, can do attitude. And I did really well at the beginning of my career because I was that yes girl. I was the girl that stayed up late, you know, stayed in the office late. I was the one that got the coffees perfect. I was like scrappy and eager and so excited to be there. And this is an issue that I've heard time and time again with women, both in my community and the, and the women that I interviewed for the book, and I'm sure you can relate to this, is that we get to a point of our career where we continue doing, where we continue playing by those same rules. And guess what? No one's going to notice. If you keep your head down and do the work and you don't tell anybody, no one's going to notice. You're going to keep you know, getting passed up by promotions. You're going to be told that you're not management material. And these things are not fair. Right. So by the way, there's a huge part of this problem that comes from the systemic and institutional issues, right. That we have in this country and in corporate America, but my book focuses on the part that we can control. And so, yeah, it's, it's, this book is really about giving tips and tools on, on the language and the mindset that we need in the nuanced ways where we give away our power at work. Mm -hmm. So why would you say those feelings particularly stem, you know, because you, you talk about it stemming culturally for women of color, those ideas of you're less than who you are. Why do you feel that it's particular for women of color? I'd just love to, I mean, I definitely agree, but I'd love to hear your own perspective. Well, the book is called The Other. And I really, 
I had a hard time coming with the title. I, I, I'm still kind of getting used to it because I really don't like it because nobody wants to be called the other, right? Nobody wants to be different. You know, being different, we've been told is a liability, but I decided to keep the title because it was a way to understand and nod to the lived experiences of other women of color, which is we have, we've been conditioned to see ourselves through the eyes of somebody else. And what I mean by that is that we have found ways to accommodate and appease and look for cues of inclusion and try to follow them for our own psychological safety so that we can feel a sense of belonging because we've been told that in order to belong, we need to assimilate, we need to cover, and we need to be as close to white culture as we can be. And that's just not true. And what I, what I, what I want to share through the narrative of this book is that it's actually more advantageous to lean into that duality, that, that multidimensional duality that we thought, you know, what we, we wanted to brush off. I spoke to an Asian woman who worked in an industry where she was the, one of the only women of color. One of her managers asked her to help with her daughter's Chinese homework. And this girl's like, I grew up in Connecticut. <laughs> like, I have nothing to do with this. But she had that, that conditioning that stereotype threat that had been with her her entire life, which is she'd been catcalled on the street. She'd been fetished by men, like all of these things that she, that made her feel so dismissive of her culture. For a long time, she told me that she was ashamed of her culture and that she, she didn't like in, in high school, she, um, she didn't even want to sit with the Asian kids at school because those kids were fresh off the boat. And then she started crying to me because she said, I feel so guilty and sad that I would even feel that way. But it's because someone at some point told her that her identity was not good enough, that she was the other, that she was different and that she needed to change. And so because we have experienced as women of color, the categorization, the stereotype and the boxing in of somebody's idea of us. The part of this book that is so important to understand is that whoever told you that, however we defined our own origin of the other, came from somebody's own cognitive dissonance. It came from a person or persons who have a limited knowledge, limiting understanding, and quite frankly, they're projecting fears and insecurities. And at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with us, right, and our identities, and so that's a long-winded answer, but it's complex. And that's what I get into on the book because it's really important to not just give women strategies and tips on how to advocate better, but to really link it to our lived experiences because so much of who we think we are come from our beliefs about ourselves, right? Unconscious beliefs about ourselves. They, they dominate our actions and thoughts. And so it was really important for me to understand and, and to kind of sift through the meaning of that. Hey everyone, before we continue with this podcast episode, I'd love for you to check out the best-selling Clever Girl Finance book series. There are three books in the series and the first book is Clever Girl Finance, Ditch Debt, Save Money and Build Real Wealth. The second book is Grow Your Money, Learn How Investing Works. And the third book is called The Side Hustle Guide, Build a Successful Side Hustle and Increase Your Income. 
You can also check out my fourth book called Choosing to Prosper, Triumphing Over Adversity, Breaking Out of Comfort Zones, Achieving Your Life and Money Dreams. And this book highlights my personal story to building a business of impact and challenges you as the reader to dig deep into laying out what you truly want to accomplish for yourself. I wrote each of these books to empower women just like you to achieve your goals and get to the point where you're living the life you desire on your own terms. If you love these books, be sure to tell your best girlfriends and they also make the perfect gift. These books are available everywhere books are sold and you can purchase them as ebooks, audiobooks, and also physical books. And you can also ask your local library to order them as well. Thank you so much. And let's get back to the episode. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you're preaching to the choir here. You know, my experiences can write a whole book, which I have. (laughs) I just wanted to hear your perspective because it's something that the audience of this podcast is primarily women of color. And it's something that I, I hear them say all the time, like, you know, the idea of staying your place, not ruffling too many feathers so you don't lose your opportunities, you know, that stay in your lane, keep your head down, et cetera. And so it's that you highlight it based on your experience. I just want to say there's real retaliation in the workplace for women who stand up, say no, put their foot down, right? I have been called aggressive, angry, right? When I've deviated from the, you know, go-getter, always grateful immigrant, right? In a lot of different aspects of my life. And so that causes dissonance with people and it leads to microaggressions. And that's why it was so important for me to also put in the book how to deal with those microaggressions. Because again, like I I know, and that's why I have experiences of Black women and all different types of women who have been othered. Because we all experience it in different ways, right? I'm sure me and you have different experiences, you know, just because of the color of our skin. So you talked about sharing tactics in, in your book of how women can deal with those microaggressions especially when they they feel that they have to prove their worth. And you certainly experienced this going through your career. What are some of those tips and what are some of those lessons that you learned so that folks who are listening can apply them if they find themselves in spaces where they're having to prove their, their worth at work? How do they go about it? Yeah, so to answer the microaggression question, so first thing, women who have been microaggressed towards, they they have a history of being stereotyped, right? If we're, if we're talking about women of color, many of us have many instances in many different areas of our lives where we've been stereotyped. So our fight or flight automatically goes up when somebody is making a, a, a microaggression towards us. So first thing I always say, like, take a breather, let it out and try to regulate your nervous system. Second of all, as women of color, we like, again, like I said, it's, it's, we don't want to cause dissonance. We don't work. We don't want to have anybody double down on any stereotypes that they think of us. Right. And so we like to fill the room up with words in order to dissuade the discomfort. Like we usually take on the, the, the uncomfort of, of somebody else's comment on our own. I had one woman that I interviewed for the book whose manager called her a China doll and she didn't know what to do that. She like froze and she didn't say anything in the moment. 
And a lot of women, that's what happens. They either freeze or they laugh it off because they're so uncomfortable with it. They don't know what to do with it. And then they internalize it. And then they feel like, am I crazy for thinking that? Am I overreacting? Right? We always go to question ourselves. So instead of doing that, one thing that you can do in the moment is that's not combative is just asking for clarification. What did you mean by that? Right? Even it's even toned. You're not, you're asking a question and that does two things. It allows a person who made the comment to apologize because let's face it, some people are not the smartest and will throw around comments and then will realize it. So they, they apologize, right? Or second of all, they double down on it, right? And they, they don't see the issue. And now you have, if that happens, now you have clear data that this was a clear microaggression. And then you can go to HR, right? I mean, I think it would be easy to say, you know, go to HR the moment it happens. But again, I've heard from so many women that there are real retaliations against it. So I think there's there's two sides of the coin here. And then, you know, you want to make sure that you have a support system and that you vent and that you talk to a community of other women that that go through this. Because again, the worst thing that we can do is hold this on our own and internalize it and feel like we're the problem. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes even going to HR is not enough because sometimes HR is is part of the microaggression or they don't understand the microaggression. They don't understand why it's a big deal. And just in my personal experience and lots of other Black women that I know who have dealt with this, I think it's also important to really be clear on the value you bring be clear on your worth of who you are as a woman with your background, with your skill set, with your education, why you're valuable to this company and know when it's time for you to exit. That's really important to hold your, your head up high because the worst thing you want to feel like is you've experienced this microaggression or continuing to experience this microaggression and the institution within the organization that's supposed to support you is not supporting you because you're like, oh, it's not really a big deal. Chin up. <laughs> Right. You know, and then you start to feel less than yourself over the long term career aside that starts to impact you mentally and psychologically. So it's really important, like always, always, always remember your worth and who you are. And like you said earlier on, you you said when people start to act a certain way negatively towards you, a lot of times it's based on their own insecurities and their own ignorance and their own lack of knowledge it has nothing to do with you. So you don't want them to make you feel less than because of their own personal issues. Limited knowledge. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Have understanding of complex cultures. And that's an advantage you have. You have a skill that is both a soft skill and a hard skill. You understand people and culture and empathy and humanity more than that person. Like that in itself is a skill. So Daniela, looking back, overcome this different challenges with being undocumented, navigating, feeling less than, feeling like the other, building a really great career. When you think back on your journey, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give that 16-year-old self, 16-year-old Daniela that had just learned that she was undocumented and had no idea what the future, what her future was going to look like? But now that you know, what advice would you give her? 
<laughs> I think the 16-year-old Daniela should give me advice right now. I mean, that 16-year-old Daniela was fearless. But like, seriously, I, I look back and I'm, I'm so proud of myself. And I think a lot of us that are listening to this, I hope you look back at a moment where you're like, I'm, I'm freaking proud of, proud of myself. We need more of that. We need more joy. We need more celebration because we've worked hard. If you're listening to this, you are probably already somebody who cares about their personal growth, that cares about having an impact, whatever, in whatever shape or form that is for you. But I really do think that she could teach me a thing or two, rather remind me, right? Because I think we all know those lessons inside of ourselves, but they've been quieted and muted and tainted by other people. It's all, it's all inside of us. We already know it. And so I think that 16 year old me, I need her reminder sometimes that I need to continue to be fearless, continue to stand in my truth and continue to make a big splash. I mean, 16 year old Daniela, she just made a splash. She did not take no for an answer. I love that. (laughs) So there's a section in your book that I just wanted to read that I wanted you to elaborate on and also share why it's so important. And it's on page 186 of your book. And you talk about grabbing a seat and ordering a coffee too. It's that chapter. So you said, it's not just about celebrating your wins, but also about using them as fuel for what you're advocating for. Getting used to talking about yourself and being able to clearly articulate what you've done so far and how you've executed it can feel brand new, especially when you're not used to it, but it is a game changer. Can you elaborate on that? not getting caught up in celebrating your wins, but using them as feel and getting used to talking about yourself. Why is this so, so important, especially for women of color? Especially for women of color. And especially right now where a lot of us are working remote because managers right now have a hard time juggling and keeping track of people. And it's more than okay. It's necessary to make sure that we are reminding people of our wins, whether it's weekly or biweekly, like get in the habit of letting your boss know what the heck you're doing. Because by the time that you're in the, at the negotiating table and you're like, Oh, I did this. I did that. I did that. Managers like not all managers are good managers, by the way, they're going to be like, what you did. What? (laughs) That's that's true. (laughs) And so we need to take ownership. We cannot hold anyone else accountable but ourselves. And we just need to own it. Part of owning our narrative is owning our wins and being damn proud of them and making sure that you are inserting it any chance you get. Like, and we can do it casually. Like men are great at this. Like they will be chit-chatting or whatnot and just will like casually boast about that project they did or the numbers that they had or somebody they brought to the table or a connection they made. Why can't we do that? We're women who are tactful, who are, we can be hard and soft and let's use our personalities. Let's use our, you know, our soft skills to to also do that. We don't have to change and be like the men, but we can use our own personalities, but also get the job done and let people know what we're doing. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more. And like you said, it's more important because it's almost with a lot of people working from home, if your voice is, is not active on those Zoom calls, as uncomfortable as it can be sometimes, yeah. especially if you're introverted, it's basically out of sight, out of mind, right? If they can't hear you. They don't know you exist because your body is not in the room there <laughs> to yeah. represent yourself. You're now a virtual, <laughs> you're a virtual being above several others. And so you have to make your voice be heard. And I, I love what you talked about, you know, and I talked 
talk about this a lot also about just documenting, keeping track of what you've done so that you can present and say, I have done all these things. These are all the ways I have contributed to the success of this company. This is my value here and be acknowledged and make sure you're rewarded accordingly for what you have, what you have done. And not just that, that is like the most important thing, what you just said, but it also helps us keep track of our value. Yes, absolutely. We often forget and it leads to burnout because everybody wants to be a yes girl. Everybody wants to, and it's hard because then you don't know how to delegate effectively. Then if you help yourself by keeping track, you will be a lot more comfortable owning your worth because that constant reminder is going to be right in front of you. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. Well, Daniela, thank you. This has been so great. But before I let you go, there's a couple more questions. And the first one that every guest gets to answer is what is your clever girl superpower? Ooh, my clever girl superpower. My duality. I can be a lot of things at once. And it took me a long time to, to own that. But I'm a lot of things at once and I don't make sense to people. And that's okay. That's perfectly fine. You don't have to make sense to everybody. You have to make sense to you. (laughs) It's working out so far. (laughs) Yes, that's where it matters. Making sense to yourself. Mm -hmm. I love that. And then tell us again the title of your book, where folks can find it and where they can learn more about you also. Yes. So thank you again so much for having me. I, this was a fantastic conversation and I really admire your work. So thank you so much. The book is called The Other, How to Own Your Power at Work as a Woman of Color. It came out yesterday. So I would love to see what you think on social. I'm at, at D Pierre Bravo and my mentorship platform is at Accesso Community. And yeah, I, I love to, to hear from readers and hear what you think. And thank you so much. Yeah. So yesterday being August 23rd. So if you are listening to this, her book is out there. Definitely pick up a copy and Daniela, your contact information for folks who want to reach out or follow you will be in the show notes. So congratulations on the release of your book and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode and I hope you enjoyed it. If you've loved the episode, but you don't yet subscribe to the podcast, you can do that everywhere you listen to your podcast episodes and head on over to iTunes and leave a review so other amazing women just like you can find this podcast as well. Thank you so much for being here and I'll talk to you on the next episode.